0: Good morning. Welcome everyone. My name is Tom. I'm the assistant pastor here. And as you know, Pastor Brent, he's our senior pastor. But every once in a while, every month or so, he gives Pastor Gary or myself the uh, the chance and the opportunity and the honor to uh, deliver the sermon to you. So that's what I'm doing this morning. And our text is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. I'll read it now. It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Now, this image that you, you saw on the screen behind me in a moment ago, that um, the image of a treasure chest that Pastor Brent chose for this section of Ephesians, I think that's a very fitting one. And in our text I just read, Paul tells us about the riches of God's grace that he pours out on us. And in Romans 8.32, Paul tells us that since God the Father gave us the Son, then the greatest gift of all, then won't he just like pour out all these other rich blessings upon us and give us graciously all things in Christ? And these things that Christ gives us are expressed throughout scripture as as treasures, as riches and as gifts and of course, we all have that tradition of celebrating uh, Christmas with the giving of gifts and and this celebration it gives us just the shadow of a hint of how generously our God gives gifts to his children and paul 's excitement about these treasures that we get about these gifts that we have in christ it it makes me think of some of the years I had the opportunity. To serve in kids' church um, on the first Sunday after Christmas, and I, I, I got to I got to teach the first grade class. Um, I think I fit in well there because I that's about how far I've uh, progressed emotionally and socially. <laughs> Thank you for not amending that. <laughs> um, so on the first Sunday after Christmas, you know, I love to greet the kids. I, I'd get their attention, you know, as they came in. I'd squat down on their level and just make eye contact with all of them, and they knew I was about to say something, but they didn't know what, so they'd just come in closer. And I'd lean in, and I'd say, so, tell me, what'd you get for Christmas? And the room just erupted. You know, all the kids, they'd be elbowing in front of each other to get close. They'd be talking over each other, and it just became this one long sentence of just listing off all these gifts. And... I like to imagine Paul uh writing this section of Ephesians with that same kind of excitement, one gift after another. You know, it's almost like Paul or someone said to Paul, "Hey, what'd you get for Christmas?" And Paul, he just can't contain himself. I got grace, you know, I got peace, I got I got all these wonderful things. And even in his, even in his writing, Paul, he's too he's too excited for grammar. Um this morning I read for you three verses, but it's all one sentence and in the in, in the original language it goes back even further all the way to verse 3 to verse 14 which we'll get to next week or the week after that's all one sentence in the original language um, almost as many words as the Getty, gettysburg address and paul he's got every reason to be excited he's got every reason to be giddy you know i got every spiritual blessing i got chosen i got elected i got redeemed i got Adopted, I got forgiven. I got wisdom. I got insight into God's plans. I got all these things in Christ and Paul. He just can't contain himself. And so like kids on Christmas morning, it's just one gift after another. You know, kids are impatient. They never take the time to really, really focus on each treasure before, before moving on to the next. So what we're going to do is we're going to slow down just a little bit. We're going to try to slow Paul's role and unwrap each gift. And we'll start with, redemption. Now Ephesians 1.7 says in him, we have redemption through his blood. This of course is referring to Christ. Now I came across a story in a Kent Hughes commentary, and I think it really captures the heart of redemption. Well, and in this story, there's a young man. He lived on the shore of a great lake and he loved sailing more than anything. He loved the water. And one year, his father, for Christmas, gave him the perfect gift. It was this model boat that the boy put together, and it could actually sail. And all throughout the winter, the boy worked on this beloved boat. And when spring came, of course, he said it sailing. But one day, you know, this great gust of wind came, and it blew the boat out into deeper waters, and the boat was lost to the boy. And every day, he'd come back. He was looking for his boat, scouring the, scouring the shore for it, but he never found it. Until one day, he was walking in town and he saw his boat. You know, he saw his boat in the window of a local shopkeeper. So he comes bursting through the door. You know, he runs up to the counter and he tells the shopkeeper what had happened. It's his boat. He lost it. But shopkeeper, he says, no, not so fast. I paid good money for this boat. A local fisherman found it. He brought it in. He sold it to me. The boat is mine. If you want the boat you're going to have to pay full price for it. And so that's what the boy does. He spends his whole summer earning enough money to buy the boat back. And he does. He returns to the shopkeeper, runs up to the counter, throws down the money on the counter, and says, this is my boat. And he says to the, he he takes the boat in his arms and and he says the words that I think really express God's part of redemption. He looks at his boat and he says, you are twice mine now. Once because I made you, And twice, because I bought you back when you were lost. And that's exactly what it is for us to be the redeemed of the Lord, to be twice loved. God made us, and when we were lost, he paid the price in the blood of Christ to buy us back. And now we're his treasure. Now, of course, in the story, the object of redemption, it's just a simple boat, and the price is a few hard-earned dollars, but in reality, the object of redemption is us, its people. And the price is not paid in dollars, but in blood. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now our redemption, the price for it was the life of Christ. That was the price of our ransom. But why do we need to be redeemed in the first place? What do we need to be bought back from? Well, in verse 7, we read on, we see the word trespass. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, trespass, of course, it means to go beyond a boundary. It means to enter into forbidden territory. Now, God sets boundaries for us, not because he's a party pooper, but out of his fatherly love for us. He wants to keep us safe. But of course, there's something in us that rebels against that, that wants to kick up against the boundaries. And that's something that we inherited from Adam and Eve, the first sinners. It's something in us that says, I'll do it my way. You're not the boss of me. Now, Some of you may be familiar with a very famous poem. It's called Invictus by William Henley. And Invictus, it's about this steely resolve to just char your own course no matter what. And it's composed of very thinly veiled rebellion against God. Now, in it, Henley claims to be unafraid of suffering. He claims to be unafraid of divine discipline, death, and wrath. The poem reads, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds, and shall find me, unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, above all, Henley, he's concerned with charting his own course. He's telling us that he'll gladly suffer wrath, that that he'll ignore God's discipline, that he'll endure the horror of the shade, which is hell, if only he can be the one that steers his ship. Oh, what a tragedy that is. You know, I wonder what, what Henley would tell us if he were here today. Is he still unafraid to endure the wrath of a holy God against his trespass? Is he still the master of his fate after facing judgment? Of course not. But this is the same judgment that we all are appointed to face for our trespasses. So God's wrath is the reason that we need to take our trespasses seriously. Now, in this this very same book, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul expands on the nature and the consequence of our trespass. It reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in what you once walked, following the course of the world." following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons and daughters implied of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we read here that in our trespasses, you know, just like the little boy's boat that was blown out to sea, we followed the current of the world, We were blown there by the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, and he's done everything in his power he could do to tempt us away from the safe harbors of God. And then Ephesians 2 goes on to say that we are sons and daughters of disobedience, meaning again, that disobedience is a family trade. It's something we inherited from Adam and Eve. And that's why, that's why we find the the rebellion of Invictus so stirring, so captivating. It's because it's in our nature to rebel, and then we read about the the passions of our own flesh and minds so we're not entirely like the little boy's boat who was blown out to sea at the mercy of outside forces you know we are each the own little captain our conscious captain of our own little ship we've willfully left the waters of god's harbor and now we're in trouble you know that's the nature of our trespass and now the consequence of our trespass if I could have Ephesians 2 back on the screen. It says we are dead. That's the consequence. But that's not even the worst part. You know, it's bad to be lost in our trespass as sons and daughters of disobedience. It's worse to be dead because of it. But it's unimaginably horrific to suffer under the wrath of God. Now, it says we are children of wrath. Now, we often think that we need to be saved from our sins. And of course we do. That is absolutely true. But what we really need more than anything is to be saved from God's wrath. Now, you've probably heard it said that hell is the absence of God. That's not true. You know, the unforgiven children of wrath will not get off so easy. Hell is not the absence of God, but it is the presence of God's wrath being poured out. You know, the wrath of an all-powerful God whose anger against sin is in perfect alignment with his justice. Now the punishment, it will fit the trespass. Ephesians 5-6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, because of our sins, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now that is the bad news. But the good news is that this doesn't need To be so, we don't need to suffer under God's wrath because he sends his only begotten son to be a ransom payment for us. The word ransom and redemption can be used almost interchangeably. And now, Steve, he already did such a wonderful job talking about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is. So I just get to simply read Romans 8, where we find what God the Father sending God the Son, Jesus Christ accomplishes. It says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we read that the condemnation for our sinful flesh has been poured out on the sinless flesh of Jesus. And this fulfillment of the law on our behalf this is the revelation of the mystery of God's will and his plan for those who are to receive salvation. It's his good purpose towards us, and it will one day be, glo- be brought to the glorious fulfillment that Paul's going to talk about in a minute. But before we skip to the fulfillment of that plan, let's make sure that we're actually a part of the plan. Because it's one thing to hear about God's plan for salvation in Christ, but it's something else entirely to believe it. Now, um, Rick Moore's teaching on believe a couple of weeks ago. Um, Do you believe? Do you trust? Do you rely on? Do you live your life according to the forgiveness of God that we have in Christ? Have you entrusted your eternal soul to God's plan to redeem you and to offer you forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God the Father's only begotten Son? So are you are you, are you you more than aware of God's plan for salvation? Are you believing in God's plan for salvation? Are you trusting in it? Now, maybe you've heard somebody say something like, well, if you knew what I did, then you'd understand that I'm beyond forgiveness. Or maybe if you knew how many times I've strayed, you know that I'm a lost cause, I can't be forgiven. Or maybe you're even the one saying that, or at least thinking it. And I get it, you know, I can relate to that kind of self-deprecation. But when you say, or when you think, or when you act like you're beyond forgiveness, you need to keep in mind that salvation has absolutely nothing to do with you being good enough. You know, we're saved by grace through faith, and not because of anything that we've done. Not because of any goodness that's within us. There's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can can accomplish that will make us deserve or earn our salvation. And what I'm saying just may sound shocking in the, in the day and age we live in when self-esteem is King, but Hey, there's badness within us. You know, if we were good enough, we wouldn't need saving in the first place, but we do need saving. And Jesus paid with his blood in order to save us. So if you're saying, if you're thinking you can't be forgiven, what you are saying is that Jesus is not good enough to forgive you. You're saying that the price he paid for your ransom is not enough to pay for you. And as your pastor, I can't let that stand. So let's imagine something together. You know, imagine yourself present at the last day of Jesus. You witness his skin just being flayed from the bone under the Roman's whip. You walk with him as he stumbles along carrying his cross up the hill. And you watch as the Roman soldiers nail his hands and his feet to the cross. You sit and you watch as he suffers. You know that the wrath of God is being poured out on him because of the sins of the world. And then you hear the words of Jesus. He says, it is finished. But before he bows his head and gives up his spirit, you speak up. You say, no, Jesus, it's not finished. It's not enough. What you just endured isn't enough to forgive me. If you knew what I did, if you know how many times I've strayed, you'd know that it's not enough to forgive me. Well, he does know. And that's exactly why he went to the cross in the first place, to forgive you. Now, when you say you can't be forgiven, you're saying that God's grace is not enough. So don't make that mistake. There's plenty of grace to go around. And Jesus, he calls us to make a habit of coming together as a church and celebrating and remembering his sacrifice as a family. Now, normally at faith, uh, we celebrate communion as a separate part of the service. But today, you know, given the texts, I thought, it, I thought that it would be a good idea to celebrate communion together as we walk through and talk through the redemption that Christ has purchased for us. Now, at the Last Supper the first communion. Uh, Jesus claimed that it was his body, his broken body as as represented by the bread that we were about to eat, that is God's provision for us. Now, Jesus claimed that it is his blood as represented by the juice, that is the redemption payment that buys us into the new covenant of forgiveness. Now, on that cross, Jesus, he takes and he drinks the cup of God's wrath that we should have to drink ourselves. Now, we've all contributed our sins into the filling up of that cup of wrath, but Jesus takes it from us. And instead of the wrath that that he drank, he gives us in its place a cup filled with joy, grace, peace, and forgiveness. Now, the communion table, it is for forgiven sinners. It's not a place only for Christians who have had a particularly good week, Um, It's a place for Christians to be reminded that Jesus is our redemption. So if you are believing that the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus is for you, then communion is for you. Now, if you don't yet believe that Jesus is your Savior, and you're still here as as a seeker, maybe, then just let the elements pass today. But use the time of song that we are about to hear to prayerfully contemplate and consider the gift of redemption That Jesus offers you today. Now, when Jesus said, take communion in remembrance of me, now he's not only telling us to remember the sacrifice on the cross, and he's also calling us to remember and observe the provisions of grace that he's given us today. But he's also telling us to remember the future promises, those promises that have not yet arrived. Now, in a few moments, we'll get to hear the verse in Ephesians where Paul talks about God's plan for the fullness of time when all things unite in Christ. And that's the promise that we are called to remember today, called to look forward to. Now, our unity around the communion table, it's but a reminder. It's but a foreshadowing of the future unity that we will all experience when all things under heaven and under earth are united in Christ. So... Um, Randy, he's going to have the prepackaged communion cups for you, and you can raise your hand if you prefer those. And as the worship team plays this morning, let's take some time to reflect on the past, on the present and the future. Reflect on the past sacrifice that Christ made on your behalf, that bitter cup of wrath that he drank in your place. And reflect on the present community that's offered to you with God and with his people because of that sacrifice. And we'll also look forward to the future perfect union we have in Christ because of the blood of the new covenant. So let's celebrate communion together. Now, after we finish with communion here at faith, you know, there's always leftovers. There's always more bread. There's always more juice. There's there's always more room for others to join us around the table. And this is a picture of the reach of God's infinite Grace. Now, just like the leftovers after the feeding of the 5,000, there's enough grace to go around, more than enough with grace to spare. Now, back in the book of Ephesians, it says in verse 8 that God gives forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. And the words according to, it means in line with. It means um, when dealing with matters of riches, it means in proportion to. So imagine this very, very... Obscenely rich king. This guy has more land than he could ever travel to, palaces he's never slept in, citizens that he has never laid eyes on. But one day, he's gonna have to divide up his treasures. You know, most would go to his children, some to his advisors, some to his friends. And what he gave to one, by definition, he couldn't give to another because there's a limit to his wealth. The supply of his bread, the supply of his wine, would one day be exhausted. But this is not the case with our God. Now, for all intents and purposes, we can say that the riches of God's grace is infinite. So what's half of infinity? It's infinity. What's just 1% of infinity? Well, it's still infinity. So to say that his grace is enough to forgive us, that should start to become pretty obvious. And not only is there enough grace to forgive, but there's also enough grace to provide for our every single need here and now as we live out His plan for each of us. Now we can live our lives according to the fact that we are loved, we are redeemed, we're provided for according to the riches of God, the infinite King of the universe. And the riches of God's grace, it goes beyond redemption, it goes beyond forgiveness, it goes beyond forgiveness, it beyond even provision. And in verse 9, we read that his grace is making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, remember back in those days before online streaming, we we actually had to wait an entire week for um, the cliffhanger of our favorite show to be resolved. You know, that was, was torture. But life was even worse for the prophets in the Old Testament. You know, they knew that the will of God was to bring forth a Savior. They knew that was the plot line. But the story wasn't crystal clear. You know, there was still a mystery to it. In First 1 Peter 1.10, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets, they knew about the grace that was coming. God revealed it to them. They spoke about it, they wrote about it, but they couldn't fully understand it. They didn't know who, they didn't know what. And at the end of the Old Testament, there was a 400-year cliffhanger before the Savior was born. But the faithful ones, they waited. They were longing to see the fulfillment of what the prophets spoke about. But today we get to see clearly the fulfillment of God's will because of the writings of the New Testament And because the Holy Spirit who illuminates, he opens our eyes to the truth of the good news. And like it says in our verse today, it is his grace that is making known the mystery of his will. So it's not our own smarts that figured it out. It's not our perception that does the work of illuminating the truth. It's God's grace that does this. Now the mystery of his will, it's made known through his written word, the Bible, and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And he makes known this mystery of his plan in Jesus Christ, which is, of course, God the Son taking up flesh, being born as a man in Bethlehem, living and dying in our place. Now, no one under their own power and their own imagination could have ever dreamt that up. Nobody could have put those pieces together. Now, there's an often misused verse in First Corinthians that talks about this. It says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, usually this verse, it's used to talk about how awesome heaven is going to be. And it's true, heaven's going to be greater than we, than we could ever imagine. But that's not what this verse is referring to. Now, in Corinthians, Paul, he's talking about preaching nothing other than Christ crucified. He's talking about how no one, apart from having their eyes opened by the Holy Spirit of God, can ever grasp what the Father has done to save us in Christ. But now the Holy Spirit is making these facts known to us. It says in verse 8 that among the riches of God's grace is all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will. Now there's more beauty, there's more worth in the message of the gospel than anyone could ever comprehend apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And then once we've believed in this, in the gospel, the riches of God's grace takes us even one step further and he gives us a glimpse into the future consummation of his plan in Jesus Christ. In verse 9 it says, His will is according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, To unite all things, all things in heaven and things on the earth. So we read that the consummation of his plan is total unity, all things united in Christ. And ever since sin disrupted true unity, all creation has been groaning for it to be set right again. Now, first our unity with God was broken in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. And then unity was broken horizontally when Cain killed Abel. And then, then, um, mankind tried this humanistic, uh, attempt for unity at the Tower of Babel, but that failed. And then there was disunity between God's chosen people, Israel, and the rest of us, the Gentiles. But now, by the forgiving, by the unifying blood of Jesus Christ, God is working against that sin that divides everything. Now we can be united through God. By forgiveness in Christ, we can find unity with one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And one day, when the time is fulfilled, all things will be united in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth. And The power of sin to divide will be undone and all things are going to be set right. And right now we're living in the midst of that plan, um, that plan of unity unfolding. And for today, he's given us, his beloved church, everything we need according to the infinite riches of his grace to live out our part in this unifying plan. Now, we can live knowing that if we're redeemed by Christ, we are his possession. You know, we are united with him safely in his arms. And we've been talking a lot about unity the past few months here at Faith. Uh, We talk about the unity of belief. As expressed in the Apostles Creed, uh, the unity of physically being here together in worship. Um, but above the, uh, the unity of belief and the unity of presence, we have a spiritual unity in Christ. And that's the unity that we celebrate this morning at communion. We are kept together. You know, we're safe in Christ's treasure chest of the redeemed, which is the church. Now we talked about the excitement of Paul as he, as he's naming off all these blessings we received. You know, I got adopted. I got grace. I got, I got, I got all these wonderful things because of redemption. But when Christ, when he looks at the treasures that he has because of redemption, he's not listing off spiritual concepts like Paul. Instead, he's listing off people. He says, I got Mark. I got Kelly. I got Dave, I got Lisa, he's got you. You are his treasure, you're in his keeping. And that's a wonderfully comforting fact. So why would we rebel against that? Why would we reject his offer of redemption and claim the independence of Invictus when we can trust Christ as the captain of our souls? We can trust Christ as the master of our fate. Now, a woman named Dorothy Day, she wrote an answer to William Henley's Invictus, and it's called Conquered. It reads, Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, finds and will find me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared the punishment from the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. So if you're here this morning, and Christ is not the captain of your soul, but You know, God exists, you know, you know, he exists by your conscience. You know, he exists by the evidence all around you in creation. And now the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and he's saying, Jesus paid the price for you. Well, then come to him, believe in him, rest in the fact that his love is boundless beyond all measure and his payment is enough for your redemption. Now you can receive this promise of forgiveness any day of the year. Um, But today, June 5th in particular, this is a special day. This is the day that the church celebrates its birthday. It's Pentecost Sunday. Now, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured poured out on the church in Jerusalem for the first time. And this same Holy Spirit that was given to the early church, it's the same Holy Spirit that is alive and present today. As it says in Acts chapter 2, The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. So is he calling you today? Now Psalm 107 talks about the call of the Lord, how he calls his rebellious people back from their wandering and exile. Now it poetically talks about him gathering his people from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And it shows how God can turn a heart from the self-sufficiency of Invictus over to the humble surrender of Dorothy Day's Concord. Now this psalm, it finds some of the rebellious in the desert wasteland. Some are in darkness, Some some have become fools, and some are out at sea. It says, They saw the works of the Lord, his wondrous deeds in the deep. For he spoke, and he stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths, In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. God is calming the seas for you. He went down under the waves to the deepest, darkest depths with your sins tied around his neck. And he did this so that you wouldn't have to go there yourself. Now, in faith, by grace, your sins have gone overboard to the bottom of the ocean, never to be seen again. And the raging storm of God's holy wrath against sin is quiet because he paid the debt that we owe. And this is the redemption that we celebrate. Jesus paid the price for you, twice his, doubly loved, once because he made you and once because he bought you back now Psalm 107 it continues it says they were glad when it grew calm he guided them to their desired haven let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wondrous deeds for mankind let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders so that's what we'll do this morning we, his redeemed, we will pour out our thankfulness to him for his unfailing love and for his wondrous deeds. But before we thank him in song, let's thank him in prayer. So please stand and pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, God, you are holy, set apart from sin. So God, help us to just grasp the awesomeness of being able to stand in your presence because of the cleansing, redeeming, forgiven blood of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, God open the eyes and the ears and give faith to those that need to trust in you for your salvation for their salvation this morning, Lord. God, we thank you for not only giving us insight into your plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, but God also thank you for giving us a part to play in that coming unity, so Lord, as you live it out, help us to submit ourselves to your will God. Break the illusion that we are masters of our own fate, but instead help us to trust in your sovereign plan for us. God, we thank you for your provision today, both material and spiritual. Lord, you're a, you're a good father who knows how to give good gifts. So help us to trust that you have given us and you will give us all that we need in Christ. Lord, help us to rest in the fact that in Christ, by his blood, we are forgiven of our trespasses. Lord, because you've forgiven such a great debt, let that forgiveness overflow and help us to forgive others who have sinned against us. And Lord, we ask for your protection against the evil one as we live out the plans that you have for us. Your redeemed. Lord, we ask that you hear our prayer and receive our praise. Amen.